Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor David Seltzer, professor of neuroscience in the departments of psychiatry, neurology, and pharmacology at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. In this episode, we will talk about Professor Seltzer's transition from plant biologist to neuroscientist, how hanging around musicians in New York shaped scientific interests, and how drugs like amphetamine affect synapses in your brain. All this and more coming up. We're here with Professor David Seltzer, Professor of Neuroscience in the Departments of Psychiatry, Neurology, and Pharmacology at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Seltzer. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, we'd just like to ask a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you grow up, and how did you first get into science? Well, I grew up in a small town in Illinois, Carbondale. It's a little college town about 100 miles south of St. Louis near the Mississippi River. And uh, so uh, although it's kind of a hillbilly town, uh, it was a college town. And, and my parents were both psychologists. That's why why we lived there. My uh -huh. mother was going to graduate school, and my, my father was an assistant professor down there. Um, and uh, they were big fans of uh, uh, behaviorist psychology. They were um, uh, really followers of B.F. Skinner, uh -huh. uh, who was a uh, very influential psychologist of the last century who said, well, we're not going to understand brain activity very well, but we can, we must find ways to measure differences. And so he did, for instance, experiments following up a, a previous guy named Thorndike, where they would try to find out uh, how animals would learn using pigeons and getting pigeons to learn to peck for reward and that sort of thing. Yeah. And uh, out of that came a whole school of, uh, of psychology that we still, as neuroscientists, we allude to all the time whenever we talk about things like positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, that, that all of that lingo and all those ideas came from that school of psychology. However, they really didn't, uh, and it's true, I mean, my parents didn't, they didn't really know there was brain, sci brain science, you know, it was, uh, um, it wasn't something they were aware of, and, and uh, you know, at that point it was, I think, you know, even academics really didn't go too far into it, uh, um, unless you were a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, physiologist, essentially, yeah. phys physiologist or chemist or neurochemist. Um, at that time. The, the way that I got into I got into it from two th things. One was when I was a kid, I loved, I was living in the country and I loved mm -hmm. being in the, in the forest. And uh, being sort of a bookish lad, I would um, try to learn the names and descriptions of all the plants and the birds and mm -hmm. animals. And I was a big fan of Ewell Gibbons, who was the fellow that said, go out into the woods and learn all the plants and eat them. Um, and he was an influential writer in the 1970s. And uh, uh, that, that I, you know, I, I would buy books on botany and so on. And, and mm -hmm. so I went to college and I went to Michigan State in East Lansing, Michigan, mm -hmm. and decided that I should really study plants. And, and I got a bachelor's wow. degree in it. And the, 
at that time, it was sort of the beginning of recombinant DNA. This is, you know, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And, and uh, I said, I want to be the, the person that figures out, out how to do gen genetic engineering in plants. Yeah. And uh, I spent a year and a half in, in northern Florida where I was trying to uh, where I was trying to do that sort of thing. We were working for the uh, Institute of Agriculture there and they so I'd <laughs> say a couple of things happened. One of them was um, I played hooky and yeah. drove out with a friend to uh, to Boulder, Colorado where there was uh, another unusual school out there. It's still out there. There was a, a Buddhism school. Um, I wasn't a student, but I was a hanger-on. What, uh, what was it called? It was called the Naropa Institute, huh. and it was founded by uh, not the Dalai Lama himself, but one of, the, one of the Tibetan Buddhists who was under the Dalai Lama. Uh -huh. And uh, many of the adherents to this, and I was, you know, 20 years old, and, and, and a lot of the adherents there were musicians that I admired, and poets, uh, the most famous couple of poets that were out there, and there are a lot of poets, I can name them, and you know, but yeah. uh, uh, probably the two most well-known were Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. Mm -hmm. And William Burroughs, have you ever heard of him? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, his, his famous book was Naked Lunch, and it was uh, in part about drugs, mm -hmm. and he was you know, mostly talking about yahe, which is, uh, I, I believe, the, the active component of yahe is norepinephrine. Uh, um, it's an adrenergic uh, receptor antagonist, I believe. Though uh -huh. so I'm a little rusty on that. And uh, he'd talk about, you know, the amazing hallucinations he'd have and when he'd write books like Naked Lunch and the other, the other books he was writing. And uh, I went to hear Bill I call him Bill, although I did, you know, I hung out with them, but I didn't really know these people. Yeah. I mean, I, but I'd go to parties with them and talk to them and so <laughs> on. And uh, Bill gave a lecture. He's from the same part of the country I'm from. He's from St. Louis, and he had this very nasal yeah. kind of drawl when he spoke. And yeah. he said, you know, well, one thing about Bill Burroughs is he was a heroin addict or opiate addict really? virtually throughout his life. And uh, so he was giving this talk at the, in Boulder, and he said, these scientists, they developed a way to make a synthetic opium. And if you take it just one time, you will be addicted. Wow. And he went on to say that probably the drug pushers were going to spike the heroin with this stuff and just get instant addicts. Yeah. So he was kind of horrified by this. And I mean, we, we all were, but you know, with Bill Burroughs, you never, you know, he would also speak about, uh, for instance, uh, this is, this is a yet another funny diversion, but, but, uh, that yeah. part of the country, St. Louis, Carbondale, Murfreesboro, Cairo, Illinois, it's spelled Cairo, but it's pronounced Cairo. Uh -huh. Um, that part of the country is called Little Egypt. It still is. And and there are all these towns there with names like Cairo, Cairo, yeah. Memphis, Karnak, Thebes, which I think we have to say Thebes. Um, anyway, that, so um, 
He wow. was he would talk about how they're going to build pyramids there and have a new cult of the dead and go into great <laughs> detail on this. So it's kind of humor that I've always admired. Um, yeah. The, you know, I still admire it. And but but Burroughs was really so you never knew when he was pulling your leg, and uh, y- you couldn't tell. And and he would never crack a smile. He'd say the most nuts things, and y- you would have no idea if he really believed it or not. Yeah. But this one I thought was really quite fascinating, and and. Um, so, um, I decided to, uh, actually, I, I was in Gainesville, Florida, and uh-huh. I wasn't learning enough molecular biology, and, I, it, and we were spending all our time doing wonderful stuff out in the forest and, and in the farms, but I, wa- I just wasn't learning, I wasn't learning how to handle DNA. Yeah. And so, I applied here to the University of California at Davis to do a PhD, and they admitted me. Uh-huh. And then they lost their, uh, this was a, a bad, it's the early 80s, and, and um, they lost, uh, this, the state was in bad financial shape, and all the grad student stipends just disappeared. So wow. they said, we still want you to come, but we don't have a, you know, a stipend for you. And I said, well, I don't have any money. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any money at all. Mm-hmm. And I just said, yeah. I'm sorry, I can't do it. So I moved to New York City. Uh, I moved there because I had a friend who, who lived there, and she said you could stay here. And uh, yeah. and also I'm uh, I'm a musician, and you know New York has always been a big place for music, still is. Yeah. And so I went there and, and uh, um, did a lot of music and odd jobs and so on. And I applied to grad school there, and I got into Columbia University. So at Columbia, they made everyone take neuroscience. Uh-huh. You had to take neuroscience, and uh, they had a couple of forward-looking scientists at the time, and um, let's see. So that would be. Uh, so I guess I started graduate school in 1983, and uh, of course, people have been doing good neuroscience for well over a hundred years. Yeah. But uh, it was a much smaller community than it is now. So uh, when I took that first course, and I I saw how much you could learn from this. This is a guy named uh, Cyrus Leventhal. Yeah. And another guy named, uh, who was here, from here in California. And he, he just decided that neuroscience uh, was going to be one of the two major waves of the future in, uh, in, in biology. And, and uh, uh, that we really yeah. had to, th- that every student should know something about it, even if they weren't going to do it. And, and I just got so fascinated on it. And I think part of it was, you know, the William Burroughs thing, and part of it was mm-hmm. my growing up in a family that was always interested in behavior and approaching it in a, in a scientific uh, uh, way, but not having any tools at all yeah. to examine physiology, neurochemistry, et cetera. And so it just seemed like such a, a fascinating thing to do. So it was just this convergence of you being interested in DNA and recombinant DNA and that revolution that was beginning and applying into biology and having that interest, but then also the childhood uh, interest of psychology and then pulling these experiences with William Burroughs and yeah, absolutely. Drugs. I mean, uh, just uh, everything uh, came together. If it hadn't been for for Cy Leventhal, uh, you know, I so somebody I didn't mention, but I, I should have was uh, yeah. the founder of the Green Revolution. His name was Norman Borlaug. He just died the last couple of years. Yeah, and uh, Borlaug, who I also I. I, I I've never met Borlaug, but people in agriculture just really respected him a lot. Now, people out here in San Francisco, uh, 
had you know, attacked him often in the press as if he was some kind of evil manifestation of the agricultural, industrial, you know, Monsanto and all this evil and so yeah. on. But from, from my perspective, somebody was working in the field and working on the farms and so on. It's like, wow, this guy really stopped India and Mexico from starving. Yeah. You know, so I had a, a great deal of respect for him. Uh, knowing that there were issues with the Green Revolution, too, especially when it comes to, you know, having to use a lot of phosphates and and, and uh, monoculture, of course, is, a, you know what I'm talking about. It's right. a big issue. Yeah. Um, and Borlaug actually uh, appre- knew that. He, he you know, he was, he's no fool. Yeah. And so, uh, for instance, when he would come up with new maize varieties for Mexico, he would make sure to use the the wild varieties that, that were there, much like wow. we were doing for blueberries in, in, yeah. in uh, northern Florida. So uh, that's a problem, too, but that's a problem he, he was uh, cognizant of and, and, and wanted to address. And, you know, uh, um, people are doing that by doing things like seed libraries. So anyway, there's still, yeah. it, you know, it's still messy. It's something we should be troubled by. But overall, I, I, I think, you know, it was a very important direction still do. And uh, other, you know, I, I'd probably be doing that kind of work if it wasn't that I was forced to take a neuroscience course. And so that ne- that neuroscience course really got you motivated to try to understand the brain. It wasn't even that good of a course. Yeah. But but it was like, uh, you know, the teachers of Marty Chalfie went on to win a Nobel Prize. He had just started being a professor there. He, he, okay. He won a Nobel Prize for uh, part being part of the group that worked on green fluorescent protein yeah and a woman named Darcy Kelly who's also still a professor at, at, at Columbia and uh, not that they were bad teachers but you know that I mean, was just I mean it was a kind of a thin course maybe but uh-huh. you know just the fact that you could start to understand some of these brain processes I, I, I just thought was absolutely fascinating yeah so you can see I really haven't changed uh, you know since I was 23 I'm pretty <laughs> much the same well, there's a lot more work to do in neuroscience, so uh, yeah, to have the same is. interest is fine to uh, yeah. keep over Yeah, and I tell my years. grad students, depending upon their fi- what they're working on, but if it's something like synaptic plasticity and learning, I tell them, really, don't worry about this. By the time you retire, we'll, we're just, we'll know more, but we're not going to be there. Right. We're, we're just children when it <laughs> comes to a lot of these questions. Yeah. So... Now let's um, get into your tackling some of these Mm -hmm. questions. So, um, Manu, um, now uh, skip ahead to your uh, postdoc so we can get into Mm -hmm. uh, later some of the work you've done in your own lab. But I think uh, you had a really interesting paper um, as a postdoc with Stephen Rayport at Columbia Mm -hmm. where you worked on key mechanisms of psychostimulants and psychoactive drugs. Uh, What um, was the Rayport Lab generally interested in the time, and where did your project no, fit uh, in? So Steve, who's still a professor also at, yeah. at Columbia, I, uh, he just started his lab. I was his first uh, postdoc. In fact, I met him when he was a postdoc and was yeah. going to start the lab, and, and we had uh, we had lunch, and I said, oh, you know, you're starting a lab. What do you want to do? And he said, well, I think I want to do LTP in tissue culture, which, you know, Plenty of people did later, but yeah. you know, it's the first, I, I hadn't thought of that. I said, "Gee, what a cool idea!" And uh, this is this is genuinely what happened. I mean, if you ever get Steve here, you can ask his version of it. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you, 
there's his story and her story and history and this is this is my story this yeah. is my version <laughs> of history so you know i i joined uh steve's lab as as his essentially the first member of his lab and and uh steve had learned uh, neuronal culture he had studied with kandel and linas and sam uh shacker sam was starting to do culture of aplysia neurons yeah. so uh Steve had been reading these papers by people like Gary Banker, who's st again still doing very good work. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we started making these hippocampal cultures. And one day he comes back and he says, "Oh damn it, Chuck Stevens, who was a guy here in California, uh -huh. Charles Charles F. Stevens, is in uh, La Jolla, I believe, in San Diego. Uh -huh. Oh my God, he's doing this, and he's a Howard Hughes investigator, and he has sixty people in the lab, and and we're just going to get beat." And, uh, I mean, in a way, it was good he said that because it sent me off on a different track. On uh -huh. the other hand, it took Chuck years and years to publish LTP and culture. So I'm not sure it's always a good idea to avoid doing work because it suddenly becomes popular. Uh -huh. might, might be in some cases. Regardless, it, it, so I, what are we going to do now? And he said, well, maybe we should study the dopamine system. At the time... Uh, nobody had figured out how to make uh, at least uh, uh, good dopamine neuronal cultures. So we uh -huh. spent a couple of years on that. And I think what you're getting to is, uh, so I was still interested in drugs, and and I'm not, you know, I'm not somebody that takes drugs other than alcohol and coffee. Yeah. But uh, again, being a musician, and uh, you know, I was around plenty of people who were heroin addicts and meth addicts and this mm -hmm. and that and, and it's so and alcoholics and um always been an interest of mine and you know uh bill burroughs as we were saying kind of stimulated my imagination in this and mm -hmm. i was reading the papers that were coming from saul snyder which i believe is what bill burroughs was referring to i think he was referring to the work by pert and snyder who had um were studying the, the opiate receptors and, mm -hmm. and um, then other people, medicinal chemists, were coming up with, you know, uh, drugs like methadone, and but also all sorts of synthetic opiates. Uh, fentanyl. Uh, I don't actually know when fentanyl was developed. It was developed before that. But mm -hmm. uh, this is the stuff that's killing people in the South and the Midwest right now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's synthetic opiate. So uh, these... Uh, uh, you know, all this was very interesting to me, and, and uh, realizing that all these addictive drugs were working on these very neurons that we were studying. We mm -hmm. were studying them more for their roles in, nor roles in normal behavior, and you know, they were had been implicated for decades in, in schizophrenia because uh, antipsychotic drugs are all dopamine receptor yeah. antagonists. Um, but they were involved and it was becoming more and more clear at that time that virtually all the drugs of addiction were working on the dopamine system uh this was work by num several people a guy named roy wise who's at nih a guy named gaetano di chiara who's in sardinia yeah. and uh, multiple other people had been doing work uh, most of it well a lot of it using uh, um, um, a technique uh, called microdialysis where you simply dialyze the what's ever in the extracellular fluid and, and measure 
what what comes out with an HPLC, and they they were finding that uh, uh, dopamine was being released. Uh, probably the major contributor to that work is, a, is somebody named Jim Olds, James E. Olds, who died very young, got hit uh-huh. by a car, but he's oh, um, the guy that uh, discovered the uh, the uh, um, the quote reward pathway where rats would hit a lever and stimulate their own media. Oh, Olds and bundle. Milner, exactly. That uh, yeah. where rats will just stimulate themselves over and over again, even to the point of not eating or exactly. Other. So a lot of and so uh, Olds discovered yeah. a tremendous amount of stuff. I mean, self stimulation and the uh, self stimulation, not just electrical, but cocaine and opiates, and uh, even stuff that people think uh, in our little world of the uh, of behavior and the dopamine system that's often ascribed to Wolfram Schultz, who's a very good scientist in um, Switzerland and Cambridge, mm-hmm. um, where people say, oh, he discovered this unexpected reward and this uh, um, that this activates the dopamine system. It's actually discovered years before, many years before that by Jim Olds. Yeah. But he, uh, again, he, he uh, uh, died quite young, I think around 1968 or so. At any rate, so work from all these people was showing um, dopamine uh, involvement. And one of the ones that really concerned me was amphetamine, because nobody knew how amphetamine worked. There were a few papers, but the mechanism of action really wasn't studied, and a lot of what people thought didn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah. So... uh, little side note again this is true of alcohol right now so what's a more used and abused drug than alcohol in the world and yet we, we actually don't know how numbers alcohol of works. people yeah yeah well yeah and the seriousness of the of the um, and, and not ju- and it also you know it's uh, I don't want to paint uh, I mean I don't want to paint it with a bad brush I mean it's so it's, it's it's also a, a, a source of uh, a lot of things we, that are positive. Yeah. So, but we actually don't understand. We know that do- we know that dopamine is released by alcohol, and we don't know why. We still don't. It's kind of embarrassing for our field. Something yeah. that that you know uh, that's uh, ought to be able to be you know groundwork for a lot of other work. The and oldest and most basic of drugs, even though. I we think kn- right have now, knowledge yeah. of other uh, dr- mechanism of action of other drugs to some extent. Exactly. I think there's really two drugs right now that uh, addictive drugs that we don't understand at all. Um, I guess that I hope that's not too much of an overstatement. One of them's alcohol, and the other one's glue. And glue sniffing is not a big issue here, yeah. but it's an enormous issue in the third world. So really? in countries like Kenya and East Africa and so on, it's a glue sniffing is a is a is a horrible scorch. It's it's really incredibly sad. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's and it's often it often kills uh, children at a very young age. Wow. So there really was this motivation to um, try to understand the mechanism mechanism of action of these drugs to try and uh, maybe help addicts in the in the future, or at least understand it. Yeah. Uh, one of the still horrifying thoughts I had was um, we kind of figured out amphetamine and and there's still work coming out now about it I don't mean that we figured out everything but we've I think we figured out that the central mechanisms that were involved in how it works and I could explain it in a couple minutes it's not that complicated 
But um, yeah. after I remember being a postdoc and, and figuring this out and saying, wow, we understand it, and I have absolutely no idea how to cure it. None. It doesn't help at all. Well, can you first walk us through what did you find with how amphetamine uh, modulates the dopamine reward pathway? Well, it had already been suspected that um, amphetamine was a substrate for the uptake transporter, uh, the dopamine uh-huh. uptake transporter, as well as for other uh, uh, monoamines like serotonin uptake and, and norepinephrine uptake. And uh, this did turn out to be true, you know, after... Uh, after the protein was cloned and could be expressed in other cells and you could really record it in isolation from everything else. Mm-hmm. The earlier uh, pharmacologists who thought that it was a, uh, that it was a, uh, um, a substrate for the dopamine uptake transporter were absolutely right. So this is before release, uh, uptake of dopamine into the vesicles? Right. So this is one of the confusing things about amphetamines. So amphetamines are very complicated. And I wrote a big review on, on them and, and drugs of abuse. And I, I said the amphetamines, because there's so many of them, you know, there's ecstasy and there's methamphetamine and there's many, many of these. Yeah. Uh, many of them developed by medicinal chemists here in California. Um, and uh, they have all different sorts of effects and moderately different um, uh, um, mechanisms of action. Uh, but the... Uh, thing that's a little confusing about them, and this is, this is uh, a little bit of an oversimplification, but most of the drugs, especially the addictive drugs that we work on, uh, bind to receptors and exert their effect somehow through receptor-mediated mechanisms. Yeah. And then they virtually all cause more synaptic vesicles that have dopamine inside to fuse and secrete. Yeah. Amphetamine is not really like that. It's a different one. Now, also, cocaine is a different one, right? Because cocaine also is a, it, 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 it neither binds a transmitter receptor, or at least the way that you usually think of it, and, uh-huh. nor does it cause uh, fusion of synaptic vesicles at some point. It's really just a dopamine uptake transporter blocker. So it sits at, at that protein. Yeah. And it's similar, it's, it's very analogous to serotonin. Um, uptake blockers used uh, for, for, to treat depression. Um, in both cases, the, uh, there's normal neurotransmission, let's say, a release of serotonin or dopamine, and it just is not being taken back up into the, the neuron. And so, so now the synaptic cleft is flooded with dopamine in the, the whole case of extra, cocaine. And let's not even say just, synaptic cleft because it goes far beyond that. So it goes to yeah. hundreds or thousands of synapses many wow. more than it would normally. So it's out there longer, and it diffuses much further. Yeah. So you get more of an area and, and a longer temporal input. Uh-huh. So uh, SSRIs used to treat depression, um, and, and cocaine uh, both uh, do that. And so that's a, an, an example in the case of cocaine of a drug that doesn't work as a receptor uh, agonist the way that, say, nicotine would. Um, but then... Amphetamine is even a little more outside the the normal function than that. So cocaine sits at that transporter and blocks it. Amphetamine is, as I was saying before, and the the old pharmacologists knew this. Uh, Yeah. 
it, it's actually a substrate. It's taken up into the cell. Now, there's a couple of things that happened then, and one of them was classic, and this also came, again, from California, from a group, uh, the papers by Fisher and Cho, uh -huh. and it has the unwieldy name of accelerated uh, exchange diffusion, which I'm sorry, it's not my fault. <laughs> um, but it's essentially the idea that these transporters, and th th they did this work a long time ago, long before any of these were cloned or crystallized, or, uh, uh, but yeah. it was based on work uh, by a guy, uh, I'm going to forget his name, Willif uh, I think Wilfred uh, Stent, I believe, who an uh -huh. uh, Israeli fellow who did the uh, first work on glucose transporters. Mm -hmm. And from that work, uh, uh, a lot of the understanding of transport uh, developed. Transporters, by the way, were actually di uh, discovered by a woman that everyone has forgotten. Her name is Barbara Hughes. Mm -hmm. It was the 1950s. She worked in Benjamin Brody's uh, lab at NIH. Did uh, fantastic work showing that blood cells could take up serotonin, norepinephrine, and they could compete for each other. So completely uh, forgotten to the history textbooks. Even mm -hmm. when I asked, you know, real specialists like Rob Edwards and Susan Mara, do you know who, in, who discovered tr transmitter transporters? And nobody knows that. So it's Barbara Hughes. Wow. Um, you can imagine if there was a clothespin uh, that you might be able to snap it so that something could, I I if you took up a molecule of something inside, you might be able to snap the clothespin and now something uh, that's on the inside could bind and when it resnaps, could now be released to the outside. Yeah. That sort of accelerated exchange diffusion idea. But there was something that really bothered me about that, which is, uh, which, uh, and I'm not saying it doesn't occur, I think it does occur. Yeah. But you could only get one molecule out at a time, in this case a molecule of dopamine for amphetamine, and uh -huh. you would never be able to get more than one dopamine molecule out for every amphetamine molecule that comes in. And that didn't seem to uh -huh. make any sense when you would see the work that was measuring dopamine release, and dopamine release was massive. It couldn't, it, uh -huh. did, it, it just, didn't seem possible that it was one for mo one for molecule dis uh, exchange. So I was trying to figure out what else it could be. And in graduate school, my gr grad student advisor was the fellow that discovered recycling of synaptic vesicles. His name was Eric Koltzman. Uh -huh. And um, Eric had asked me to do some experiments in grad school where we collapsed the proton gradients in synaptic vesicles by uh, using weak bases like ammonium chloride. It's still, you know, it's a common technique that people use now. Mm -hmm. And we discovered through this that um, synaptic vesicles could recycle as endosomes. And that was, that was my graduate student thesis, my PhD thesis. Wow. And so um, I was thinking about that and I said, well, you know, amphetamine is also a weak base and it ought to be able to collapse the proton gradient as well. So I did a few experiments, and we found out, indeed, it did. And so what happens wh when that occurs? Well, what happens is uh, the proton gradient uh, is the supplies the energy so that you can have a very large concentration of neurotransmitter inside of a synaptic vesicle. Yeah. Uh, 
years later, we developed uh, recording methods so we could actually measure the amounts. But So I'm going to tell you the, the difference between the concentration and the cytosol of a dopamine neuron and inside the vesicles at least 100,000 to 1. So whenever you have wow. a big gradient like that, you need a lot of energy to keep that gradient active. And the, the that energy comes from the, the proton gradient. So essentially, the amphetamine mm -hmm. would collapse the proton gradient. Now, exactly how it does that is still a controversy even now. So does that mean that the inside the vesicle, normally it's acidified and that provides the uh, electrochemical potential for the uh, negatively charged species that's to come right. in, in this case, the neurotransmitter? Right. Yeah, and that, that's, you know, so we had that paper in 1990, and we showed uh -huh. that, that the dopamine runs from the vesicle into the cytosol. Now, how it collapses the gradient even now is still a bit of a controversy. There's at least two things are going on. One is that um, there's a uh, transporter identified by Rob Edwards, who you, you recently interviewed, yeah. called VMAT. And, and uh, the amphetamine is a substrate not just for the dopamine uptake transporter, but also for the vesicular transporter. Yeah. So every time amphetamine is taken up by VMAT, a couple of protons run out because you know, that's it's trading charge, essentially, of uh, these two protons for taking up this, uh, accumulating this chargeable dopamine. Yeah. The other thing uh, that it does, and uh, uh, some people will tell you it's not as important, and I'm pretty confident it is. It is important, at least under some circumstances, that it's uh, amphetamines moderately lipophilic enough so that people can snort it up their nose to take yeah. it and then it goes across membranes. And uh, once it's inside, it becomes protonated itself. And so uh -huh. it, can, it can collapse uh, proton gradients. Anyway, from depending upon what kind of synaptic vesicle or secretory vesicle and what kind of organelle and different things, uh, uh, the, the, the pH gradient is collapsed. And when that happens, there's, as you say, no electrochemical gradient yeah. sufficient the dopamine follows its concentration gradient, goes into the cytosol. Now, what does it do in the cytosol? Yeah, so that was my question, because in the cytosol, I'd, I'd expect, okay, if it's not getting into the vesicles, it's not getting in a release. And we know, I know amphetamines um, almost have a dopamine mimicking effect by increasing energy. And um, Well, they have a dopamine mimicking effect because they cause the dopamine release. So yeah. the dopamine uh, in the cytosol now has changed. That kind of, now there's a mountain of, of dopamine in the cytosol, yeah. whereas before it was in the synaptic vesicles. Remember, it's a, even though the vesicles may be a relatively s small part of the overall volume, they had 100,000 to 1 concentration. Yeah. So now you have a mountain of dopamine in the cytosol. It runs backwards across the dopamine uptake transporter. That's called reverse uh. transport. So here's a, a funny thing. You could give amphetamine to your cell. Now you give that cell cocaine, amphetamine gets stuck in the cytosol, can't run out because the cocaine is sitting there. Remember, uh, it binds, but it's not a substrate, and yeah. the amphetamine can't leak out. So in a way, cocaine can actually block the effect of amphetamine. Wow. Yeah. So um, that was the beginning of that, and you know we've been working on. I mean, uh, of course, it's it's a sm small fraction of what my lab does, but it's it's still work that we do even now. Yeah. 
just to mention a collaborator. So there's a young guy, a new professor named Zach Freyberg at Columbia. Yeah. Works with a fellow named Jonathan Javich, and they just sat with us. Had, just had a very nice paper um, in Drosophila where they um, examined, uh, um, at, in, you know, at greater depth than we want to go into right now, but anybody can read it. Mm-hmm. And uh, any scientist can read it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, y- you know, used Drosophila genetics and, and went somewhat further. It's another nice paper from a fellow at University of Pittsburgh named Ed Levitan, who's been examining this at, at, at further, too. But it leads to all sorts of additional interesting biology. It's, it's led us down some very interesting roads. I guess I can thank Bill Burroughs and, and Jim Olds for this stuff. But, yeah. um, for, and also, uh, look, amphetamine was very interesting for me, uh, not because I was taking it, but because I was surrounded by a ton of people who were really taking boatloads of this stuff. Yeah. Actually, at several different points in my life, but um, all the... Uh, um, the, the, for instance, all the—I don't know if we should say it in public, but might as well. I mean, all the people hanging around with the Velvet Underground—they were all, you know, they're, yeah. uh, they, you know, they—they were taking, they were doing it to work. Students, right. you know, as you know, take Ritalin now, and they take uh, Adderall, and they, you know, Adderall's uh, Adderall's amphetamine. Yeah. So um, this is ever since amphetamine was developed in uh, when was it? Very early 1900s. It's really been. Uh, you know, had these up and downs in, in, in popularity. There were points when, you know, in places like Sweden and uh, Japan where very large segments of the of the population were taking amphetamine. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I don't want to call it an epidemic. It sounds, makes it too easy and tr- almost trivializes it. But yeah. uh, there are these periods where, you know, a drug becomes very, very, very popular. And then it disappears, and then it comes back again 20 years later. No, so I think understanding the mechanisms for how these drugs are actually affecting the brain is mm-hmm. just incredibly important. Sure. Um, and so I want to ask uh, about some research you did on uh, dopamine um, fusion. Mm-hmm. With You had this really uh, cool paper and uh, nicely titled uh, in 2004 uh, showing that dopamine containing vesicles release different amounts of neurotransmitter upon stimulation by having a flickering fusion pore, um, which I understand is essentially multiple fusion events with each event releasing a fraction, 20 to 30% of the total content. Um, So why would dopamine uh, containing vesicles do this and what was the background of this story? So so I'm gonna be speaking about that tomorrow at my lecture here. Uh, Great. So why would they do that? And then the other question is the pre- preview of the talk, so you can kind of maybe segue yeah, into well, this and then the, what you're uh, going to be talking about. Thing about the thing about how synaptic vesicles fuse. So, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Like I said, in grad school, my, my mentor, Eric, actually discovered recycling of synaptic vesicles. Yeah. And I, one of my big heroes was uh, Bernard Katz. Still is. If you haven't, you're a synapse person. If you yeah. haven't read his book, there yeah. are a few. Have you read that book? No. You got to read it. Yeah. So there, you know, there are a million pop science books. Uh huh. And once in a while, there's a great one. You know, <laughs> yeah. nobody's read uh, that I know has read Einstein's pop science book on relativity, but it's a fantastic book, at least yeah. the first half. 
And uh, Bernard Katz's book about the discovery of quantum neurotransmissions, absolutely fantastic book. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, I found Katz to uh, be very inspirational and all this. But um, even back when Eric and a guy named Ceccarelli in Italy were doing the initial experiments on the recycling of synaptic vesicles, they thought that it might be possible for synaptic vesicles to not always fully fuse with the membrane. Uh-huh. And th- this developed the name kiss and run. And then th- I don't think it's so controversial anymore, although it could be and I just ignore it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my God, this was the most controversial. People were fighting wars about whether kiss and run existed or not. Mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of nuts, you know? Just yeah. do it, try to figure out a, a better experiment. But it was an interesting issue for me. So we were lucky and we did fi- figure out a, a better experiment. So a couple of other scientists that really influenced me a lot were chemists. I still work with chemists and the talk I'm giving tomorrow is mostly all work that happened because I like to pay attention to chemistry. Yeah. And. Uh, there were t- two of them. There was a guy. Uh, there's a guy that's uh, still doing absolutely fantastic work named Mark Whiteman. Mm-hmm. He's at University of North Carolina, and his first postdoc is uh, Andrew Ewing. Mm-hmm. Andrew is uh, department chair of chemistry in Göttingen in Sweden these days. He's an American. He lives in Sweden. Mm-hmm. And uh, another fellow had figured out how to. Uh, record dopamine release with incredibly fast kinetics. Uh, just to try to be fair to everybody, it w- the, 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 as far as I know, the first use of carbon to oxidize uh, dopamine was by a fellow named Ralph Adams, mm-hmm. who University of Kansas, and he had lots of protégés, including Mark Whiteman and Margaret Rice and uh, many other very good scientists. Mm-hmm. And then uh, these people in London, Zygmunt and Crook, figured out how to do this in the brain. So Mark, uh, who had kind of grown up in this atmosphere of analytical chemists who mm-hmm. care about the brain, s- found uh, met a fellow in France, Francois Gonneau. And France, Francois, who's still around, although he's no longer doing basic science, mm-hmm. um, uh, wasn't even a professor, wasn't even a grad student. He was, France has this very weird academic system. So he was like a technician. Yeah. And yet he was writing all these incredibly good papers. I mean, uh, Francois absolutely should win a Nobel Prize uh, for the introduction of what I'm about to say. He visited a, uh, he visited a a factory in France where they were spinning carbon fiber. And he said, oh, Uh that's the stuff I need to be able to measure dopamine in the brain. And he did, and it worked better than what everybody else had been uh, using. There's a, a lot more to the story, but that's essentially the, the that's that's the central point. So he goes to uh, uh, Mark, and and Mark sees this, and and then Mark gets this simple, but to me, uh, to to my little world, earth-shaking idea. Let's take this carbon fiber and put it right on top of a, a secretory cell. So he puts it on a chromaffin cell. Yeah. And so this was 1990, and it was the first time anybody had measured the quantal release of neurotransmitter. Just absolutely beautiful. And Andy Ewing uh, uh, started doing this, and Andy uh, uh, was the first person to do this from a neuron. He did it from a giant neuron of a snail. There's a giant 
the pond snail that grows here. Yeah. So they have a giant dopamine neuron. I, I wrote a paper once to show people exactly how to dissect the giant <laughs> dopamine neuron of the pond snail. So you can go outside, grab them up, and get your giant dopamine neuron. Cool. And Andy had put it on the cell body and, and, and got released. So I said, well, I'm going to do, Andy's still my friend, and, and as uh -huh. is Mark, and, and I said, I'm going to do them one better. I'm going to record from a synapse. So Steve Rayport and I had figured out how to make these dopamine neurons in culture. We put them on a synapse, and lo and behold, for the first time, we're measuring synaptic release of neurotransmitter at the quantal level, single synaptic vesicles fusing. And, we, you know, the first time this happened, wow. it was my first postdoc, his name Emmanuel Pothos, and we call him Manos. Manos is now a professor at, uh, at Tufts University. Uh -huh. And I couldn't believe it. I was going like, my, you know, at, at the time, my, you know, whole adult life, which at that point was, what, 10 or 12 years, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was going, I've been, you know, thinking about synaptic vesicles and how they work. And I've been reading Bernard Katz, and I've been seeing people doing postsynaptic recordings. Uh -huh. But for the first time, I'm looking at the oscilloscope right now, and I'm, and I'm looking at the computer right now, and we're seeing the release of quanta of neurotransmitter. We could sit there and count the number of molecules and see how fast it is and all that kind of business. Wow. And I, I honestly, I fell down on the floor. I, had to, I was so excited. I had to lie down <laughs> on the floor because I, I was just so amazed. So the kinetics were so good. Yeah. I said, you know, we should be able to record these to see if there's any microstructure in a quantal event. And we yeah. found out that often there is. And those were the flickers. So uh, uh, we still don't understand a hell of a lot about what makes the synaptic vesicle fully fuse and what makes it flicker open and close uh -huh. and what makes it go into a full fusion or partial fusion or recycling. There's a great deal of work on this, but, uh -huh. you know, it's still... It's, it's, it's still... Um, I, I don't think anybody can claim that it's uh, still very well understood. So by sticking this carbon fiber um, measurement tool near the uh, dopamine presynapse, you could really detect the amount of dopamine so precisely that you would just be able to see these, these tiny quanta. count quanta. the molecules. And I, and I, count I, the I, molecules. I, I, took the, I took the, you know, I, I you know, printed out some of the, the pictures. And I sent them to Mark Whiteman and Andy Ewing, and they were like, no, this is impossible. You can't measure anything this small. Because they were measuring a million molecules or three million molecules yeah. that are released in something like a second. And Manos and I were measuring, uh, and also my first technician, Viviana Davila, we uh -huh. were measuring uh, 10,000 molecules Wow. that were being released in something like 50 microseconds. And they said, wait a minute, this is not possible. And I was going like, Mark, Andy, you guys measure from vesicles that are a thousand times bigger in volume. Right. You know, it's not that crazy that these should be a thousand times faster yeah. and a thousand times smaller. Um, and then uh, uh, I've always kept this letter. So then, you know, I showed that amphetamine, because we were working on amphetamine. One of the you reasons know, I, I got interested in this, I wanted to see what amphetamine would do. Yeah. A and... Uh, I said, look, amphetamine's changing the quantal size, and so is L-DOPA. And I still have a letter from Mark. Uh, it was very nice, and it's been a fantastic, you know, uh, long-distance mentor telling me it was impossible. Yeah. I still have that letter. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, 
We're done. We unfortunately are out of time. I got two Gene questions. Did, uh, you, you, yeah. answer, you got to ask two questions. It's <laughs> yeah. not so bad. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but thank you so much for speaking with me today. This is really uh, fascinating, and uh, we look forward to hearing your talk tomorrow. Thank you, David, and good luck to you and everybody else working on this project. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Pullman. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Luis Giam, Eddie Auburn, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuschel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything you wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow NeuritWest on Twitter using our handle, at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton.